1: Happy Wednesday, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw here with a brand new episode of I've Got a Secret. All right, let's get real. We all have at least one bad habit, whether it's biting your nails, gossiping, oversleeping, stress eating, the list goes on and on. And I have to say, I think they wrote that list about me, but we're all guilty. We're human. I'm here with someone that is here to help us get the most out of our lives and tackle the habits that are so difficult to break. Dr. Judd Brewer is a renowned neuroscientist and addiction psychiatrist. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University, a research affiliate at MIT, the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Sharecare Incorporated, and the co-founder of Mind Sciences Incorporated, an online platform to help overcome addiction and create healthy habits. Dr. Brewer's TED Talk, The Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has amassed over 27 million views. I think he's the perfect person to help us live healthier, more in-control lives. This is The Secret to Kicking the Habit. Hello, Dr. Brewer.
0: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so excited. I want you to know I've really looked forward to this podcast this week because, as I said in the introduction, we all have bad habits, right? We do. We do. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I could come up with a list, I feel like, as long as my arm of habits of my own that are bad that I know I need to break so I'm really really excited not only for myself but for all of my listeners and like I just said in the introduction I think this is such a relatable topic what sparked your interest in this topic early in your career
0: <laughs> my own habits
1: <laughs> <laughs> bad habits and-
0: Yeah, that and also just the struggle I had with helping my own patients in my clinic with their habits, ranging, you know, from hardcore addictions to overeating, you know, and I have to say one of the biggest aha moments that I've had in my career was making this link between uh, anxiety being perpetuated like another habit and ways to work with it, because that's not something I learned in residency training. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. So like you just mentioned, there are so many different levels of bad habits and very serious bad habits to some bad habits that someone might not think is a really bad habit, but it can still be a habit that changes your everyday life.
0: So, yeah, absolutely.
1: Let's talk about how these bad habits become habits. How do they get formed in the first place?
0: Yeah. And one thing to think about is and remember is that not all habits are bad. You know, we 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 talk about breaking bad habits because, you know, we want to help people live better lives. So I think the place to start is to think about how habits are formed in the first place and how most of our habits are actually helpful. You know, so if you think of waking up every morning and having to relearn everything. So from, you know, walking to putting on our clothes to making breakfast you know, we'd be exhausted before we even remembered or learned how to make coffee. right? Right. So most habits are actually helpful and they're set up in, they're all set up in the same way through this uh, system called reward-based learning. And that goes way back to our ancient ancestors that had to remember two basic things, right? They needed to remember where to find food and how not to become food for other animals, you know, to eat and not be eaten. And it don't really only takes three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, or from a neuroscience perspective, a reward for that uh, for, for us to form a habit. So think of our you know, ancient ancestors, they're looking for food, they've got to find where it is and then remember where it is. So when they find food, there's the trigger, they eat the food, that's the behavior, and then their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it, right? And so that's the reward or the result. And that feeds back and then helps us remember where our food is. Same process helps us remember where dangerous so we can avoid it. So that's how basically all habits are formed.
1: Well, you know what, when you were just saying that, I started thinking, you know, I am a very habit forming person. So I'm glad that we started this out by saying most habits are not bad. So we have to give ourselves a break by saying, you know, there are good habits And there, of course, there are bad habits, which, of course, we would like to focus on. But again, give ourselves a break because, as I just said, I'm a very habit-forming person in a good way. I like to rely on good habits. And I'm 67 years old, and I can think back throughout my entire life how regimented I am by forming habits that I really do and count on every day. So I'm glad that you said not all habits are bad. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I would say 90 to 95% of habits are good or helpful. And we can think of this as helping our brains, you know, be able to free up space to learn new things. Because I think I'm guessing you're like I am, it's, it's great to be able to have the brain space to learn new things.
1: Yes, yes. So can a brain pattern be formed after only one instance of a behavior? Or is it formed after repeated instances?
0: Both can be true. So if we, you know, for example, if something's very startling, for example, if something's very scary, let's say we step out onto the street and a car bears down on us, you know, we see it and we're, we get freaked out. And we jump back onto the sidewalk. It doesn't take a lot of times for us to have to do that to learn, Hey, you know, put your phone away or whatever we're doing. You know? <laughs> because, you know, And so you can think of that when we're kids, our parents probably said, you know, look both ways before crossing the street. And it took a long time to learn that because we didn't have the direct experience of the the possible consequences of what might happen if we did step out into the street. Thank so God. <laughs> if we happen to step out into the street, you know, as a kid and learn that we could probably learn that pretty quickly. And we can also learn that through repetition where we learn, you know, we've got our parents' voice in our head that says, "Oh, look both ways before crossing the street in a in a safer manner of learning." So both can be true.
1: True. That's so true. You know, it just reminded me of Our oldest son is 42 years old, but I can remember when he was maybe two, maybe two years old, we were in a parking lot about to go into a huge store like Target or Walmart. And we took him out of the car seat. We stood him right beside the car and he just started to walk off. And we were like, no, no, you can't do that. And and Philip took his hand and put him back by the the side of the car and he turned around, we were doing something else, and he started to walk off again. And we were like, no, You don't understand. You can't do that. And when you were just saying that, I thought, We stood him beside the car and we took a step. And we were trying to teach him, You have to stand by this car until we tell you, you can start walking away and you can start walking with us. And he still could do it. But we called it parking lot therapy for the rest of his life. And it took us about 30 minutes to teach him the habit of standing by the car until we told him he had permission to walk to us, take our hand, and we would then walk into the store.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a great example. And if there were cars whooshing by, I imagine he would have learned that much more quickly in that same parking lot.
1: Exactly, exactly. We were literally saving his life. So does our brain (laughs) naturally distinguish from good and bad habits just naturally?
0: No, it's, it's more focused on, you know, how rewarding is a behavior. So for example, (laughs) let's, let's keep going with the theme of kids, right? So imagine all the birthday parties that kids attend, and they they start learning to associate ice cream with chocolate cake and whatnot. And so that habit gets formed. seems like a good habit, you know? Boy, I wish I, the habit of going to a birthday party every weekend, you know, as a kid, we can imagine, well, I hope I I get to do that. And then we hit middle age or whatever, and our brain says, hey, where's that cake? You know, it looks pretty good. So we've got that habit that was set up as a five-year-old that says, you know, chocolate cake is good. Eat eat as much as you want. And when when we're 40 or whatever you know it doesn't work out so well if we if we just keep doing it so I, our brain just looks at hey that t- you know that's rewarding keep doing it until there are negative consequences
1: i see are certain brain or personality types more susceptible to creating bad habits
0: i would i would say there's a little bit of evidence for it you know there was this whole thing around you know the addictive uh, personality that really hasn't borne out so I would say, you know, some of us probably have some genetic polymorphisms that affect things a little bit. I don't actually focus that much on that because we can't really change our genes, at least right now, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, but we can work on our behavior. So it's, it's really about helping people understand their behavior and work with that uh, because that yeah. is something that is more pliable. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now let's move on to the good stuff. Breaking the habit. Please talk yeah. about your mindfulness technique.
0: Yeah, so I, you know, I I started studying, actually, I started meditating at the beginning of medical school, just because I was stressed out. So, you know, I started learning this thing as a way to help myself. And, and I realized how little I knew about my own mind and my own brain and how it worked and how many habits I had. (laughs) And, you know, over the course of the next decade or so, I actually <laughs> learned so much about my own addictions that I had enough content. I wrote my first book, *The Craving Mind*, which was like, okay, you know, we're addicted to uh, social media, addicted to distraction, addicted to ourselves. These types of things. A lot of that based on my own <laughs> my own addictions. And then I started seeing, as I was starting my my clinical practice as a psychiatrist, and then also starting my neuroscience research, starting to link up how mindfulness training specifically could help people identify their habit loops and work with them, which then led to, it's actually led to my second book around uh, unwinding anxiety, which kind of uses anxiety as, the, as an example, but it's how we can break any bad habit. And the idea is that there are actually three core steps that we can follow. And this, is, this is, anybody can do this. So for example, when I take a new patient into my clinic, the first thing I do is as I take a history is just to start to identify some of their habitual behaviors. So let's say, let's say you use anxiety cause it's often not described as a habit. So this, this might be helpful. So, you know, the trigger behavior result pathway I, I have a patient that comes in, you know, anxiety itself the feeling of anxiety can trigger the mental behavior of worrying, right? So we've talked about physical behaviors, physical habits like eating cake, you know, biting our nails, whatever. But the category of mental behaviors uh, is just as appropriate and important as physical behavior. So anxiety can trigger worrying as a mental behavior. And then that worrying makes us feel like we're in control, or at least we're doing something. You know, <laughs> you know we worry about our kids that are out driving at night or whatever. It, we're not controlling their behavior. We're not helping them be safer. But at least our brain has something to occupy the time. <laughs> while we so would them. you say
1: at least our brain is focusing on something?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It gives us, it kind of distracts us from, you know, so we feel like we're in control. So that's actually the first step is just to map out our habit loops. And, you know, it blows my mind how little people actually know this about their own minds. It's like their mind is this black box and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like flipping on the light switch. You know, their mind's this dark room. They have no idea they're feeling around, you know, in in their, their entire life. Like, how do I work with this? And then you just say, oh, well, let's map this out. And then it flips on the light switch and there, there's this aha. They start to understand the, how their mind works. You know, I'll, I'll give a concrete example. I had a patient who came and I write about him a little bit in my Unwinding Anxiety book where he comes in and he's just, um, he's referred for anxiety. And we start mapping out his habit loops around his panic disorder. So he, around his fear of driving and getting panic attacks on the highway. And I sent him home with our Unwinding Anxiety app just to start mapping these out. And he comes back two weeks later. And the first thing he says to me, he was also about 180 pounds overweight. He says, hey, doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I looked at him because I was like, we didn't even talk about weight loss. yet." (laughs) And he said, well, I started mapping these habit loops out. And I realized that I was eating as as a triggered by anxiety. So anxiety was triggering me to overeat and i realized it wasn't it was making my anxiety worse so i stopped doing it he went on to lose over 150 pounds wow so just that mapping process can be tremendously helpful as a first step
1: wow so are you saying mapping as in like journaling mapping your your whole anxiety process
0: you yeah so i send him home we actually created this habit mapper that anybody can use i think it's just mapmyhabit.com but the idea is I just had him look for that. What's the trigger? What's the behavior, and what's the result? So his, and that was that was the extent of the journaling. Like, don't go into the, your, <laughs> don't go into your childhood. You know, don't worry about anything about what except what's happening right now. And that's actually critical because for changing a habit, you know, certainly habits can get set up based on the birthday parties or or whatever happened in the past, but habits are perpetuated based on how rewarding a behavior is right now. That's a critical element right now. And so here we can bring awareness in. This is where mindfulness training comes in. We can help train people to become aware of what they're doing right now and how rewarding it is. So the trigger is actually the least important part of the equation. I'll give a concrete example. So when when I have patients come in and want to quit smoking, what I tell them to do is to smoke. Yes and I don't just say go and smoke right I'm their doctor I say pay attention as you smoke and then come back and tell me what you notice when you pay attention And what they realize is that cigarettes taste like crap right it's it's burning as it goes into their lungs the smoke tastes pretty bad you know it smells pretty bad i think somebody described it as you know tastes like chemicals smells like stinky cheese yuck right But that's how we change any habit is we get at the reward that's why it's called reward based learning it's not called trigger based learning it's called reward based learning so if we can help people see how unrewarding a behavior is now then that helps them break it right as compared to when they started smoking when they were 13 and the reward was being cool or rebelling or whatever totally different reward now you know now it's like their skin is getting you know looking older their their breath is smelling terrible the cigarette tastes awful
1: so in other words they're they're actually becoming aware that it is a negative payoff. And they're so aware of that. When you have them yes. do that, they're so mindful of it. Oh,
0: yes. So, so notice how that doesn't take any willpower, right? Because we, we, we're we so focused on willpower as a way to lose weight or quit smoking or quit worrying or whatever. You know, do you ever see the uh, Bob Newhart skit from the 70s, that Just Stop It? yes. Yes. <laughs> Where- you know, patient comes in and she's like, oh, I have this fear. And he goes, just stop it. You know, she's like, I overeat. And he's like, I just stop it. You know, he's like, she's like, I washed my hands. a lot." He's like, well, that's OK. You know, <laughs> but the, but the idea is, you know, we can't we can't just tell ourselves to stop a behavior. That's not how our brains work. The neuroscience says you got to focus on the reward, not on the behavior itself.
1: Wow. Yes. And by the way, I always loved Bob Newhart. I loved watching that. Well, then don't do it. Then just stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So you're not telling yourself you're not allowed to do or have something. Is that an ineffective way to tackle a vice? You can't tell yourself you can't have it.
0: Right. Well, I'll have to say basically every patient that's walked into my office has already tried that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't Because again, that brings in willpower. There's no such thing as willpower. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So how do you create a negative correlation with something that actually does spark your brain's pleasure center? Because I know that chocolate can be an example of this, correct?
0: It can. So I'm glad you bring up the example of chocolate. I I just had some chocolate earlier. Uh, So this doesn't, this isn't going to make us suddenly not like things that are pleasant. But it can help us find what I call the pleasure plateau. And chocolate's a great example of that. I I have a friend, Dana Small, who's a food researcher at Yale. She actually did this for her PhD thesis, where she fed people chocolate while they were in this brain scanner, this pet scanner. And she fed them their favorite chocolate. And she asked them, how good is it? Right. And so at the beginning, they're like, Oh, this is great. I'm getting, I'm I'm getting paid to eat my favorite chocolate and somebody's hand it's been been feeding me it. So this is great. But she kept the, the kicker was she kept feeding them and feeding them and feeding them. (laughs) And over time, they would, they would say, this is great. And then they're like, oh, it's okay. And then they're eventually thinking, what did I sign up for? And then yeah. she keeps feeding and they're like, get me out of here. This is terrible. This is awful. Right. So that we reach this pleasure plateau. And then we go off the cliff of, you know, this is, this is way too much. And we're going to, we're going to find this with anything, you know, it's not just about something's pleasurable, have more of it.
1: <laughs> yes. Know, yes. We're going to hit that already. plateau. Enough yeah. already. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so with chocolate, it's not that chocolate's going to taste bad. If we pay attention, we might actually notice how great certain you know, chocolate can taste. And for me, you know, it gets refined. It's like, well, is there a little cayenne in there? How about some sea salt? You know, oh, Sea salt, right? yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's about the, the amount at that point. If I just kept eating a bunch of dark chocolate with sea salt, it, it would, I would quickly hit that plateau and go off the cliff. What I notice when I pay attention, and we, anybody can do this, is that it actually takes very little of that chocolate for me to be satisfied. And so not only do I enjoy the richness of the chocolate, I enjoy it more because I'm paying attention, but I can also stop when I've had enough. You know, I'll, I'll give an example even with, I had a patient who came in who, so she used to eat an entire bag of, a large bag of potato chips every night as she, so she'd sit with her daughter, they'd watch television together, they'd bond over it, and she just mindlessly ate potato chips. So I said, ask yourself, you know, how little is enough and eat each potato chip while you pay attention (laughs) Two potato chips. And she was done. So I called her my two potato chip lady because she started to notice like that was enough salt for probably for the whole day, (laughs) depending on what potato chips she ate. But she realized she could be satisfied with two potato chips she could put the bag down, she could still enjoy her evening with her daughter, and she wouldn't feel bloated and stuffed uh-huh. and you know, guilty for eating the whole bag. Wow. Right? No willpower, just awareness.
1: Mindfulness training. That is amazing. So we do two things in every podcast. First, we do what's called the drink of the day. And we create the drink of the day around here that focuses on our topic and our guest. So we've created our drink called Fake Soda Fizz. Since this episode is all about breaking habits, this drink of the day is for all of you soda lovers out there. And by the way, I have to tell you, I gave up soda about 10 years ago because I realized it was a bad habit for me. I have a Mm. really sensitive digestive system and it is not good for my digestive system, so I did. I actually gave up that bad habit, but this drink that I'm calling the fake soda fizz will help curb those soda cravings with its refreshing carbonation and delicious taste. You take one pitcher of filtered still water, a handful of strawberries sliced, three limes sliced, one lemon sliced, a handful of mint sprigs, then some sparkling water. You add the strawberries, lime, mint, and lemon to the pitcher of water. Cover the pitcher and let it sit for eight hours minimum. After the water is infused, pour yourself half of a glass and top the other half with sparkling water. Add in a squeeze of fresh lemon if you'd like more flavor and enjoy. So, this one is in honor of you. And I wish (laughs) we were together. I wish we were together because we're virtual today for all the listeners, but in honor of you, cheers.
0: (laughs) Cheers. That looks fabulous.
1: Doesn't it look (laughs) fabulous and sound fabulous? For all of you listeners, you can go to I've got a secret with Robin McGraw.com and you can see the drink and you can see the recipe and you can make it for yourself. And I love that, that it's minimum of eight hours because it's worth it. So everyone get in the habit of making your infused water in honor of Dr. Jed Brewer. (laughs) Okay. So moving on, do you treat heavy addictions such as drug addiction and eating disorders with the same methods that you use for the lighter ones, such as biting your nails?
0: In general, yes. So for example, my patients with binge eating disorder, uh, the it's really important. I'll I'll give an example. I had a patient who came in, who was a, a very unhealthy weight, and she was binging on entire large pizzas 20 out of 30 days a month. Okay, so severe binge eating disorder. She tried everything. Um, she came into my clinic. And what I had her do was go, we have this eat right now app. And I had her start using these training in mindfulness using this, this program. And what it trains her to do is to pay attention as she overeats so she can see how unrewarding the overeating is, right? And so she can see, well, this doesn't actually you know, solve my problem. So first we mapped out her habit loop. It was, she would have these negative emotions that would come in. She would binge because that was the only thing she learned as a way to cope with them. She would, she described it as that she would numb herself by eating by overeating and that numbing well, it was temporary. So she would have to do it again, <laughs> you know, and of course it was leading to all sorts of guilt and shame and all of this stuff. So you had her pay attention. She started to become disenchanted with the, with the binging. And we also had her bring in so that's that's really the second step of this whole process is paying attention as we overeat or you know whatever the behavior is. but then the third step is what I call bringing in the bigger better offer, the BBO and so what she realized was that you know she was beating herself up, she was judging herself so we had her start learning you know in mindfulness practice it's called loving kindness, but basically bringing kindness to herself instead of judging herself and even judging ourselves is can be a really a negative habits that, you know, well, at least I'm judging, I'm doing something, it's like worrying, but it feels bad. And so she could learn to see what it felt like not only to overeat, but also what it felt like to judge herself. And then she could compare that to being kind to herself. And it's a no brainer, right? Kindness feels so much better. So she was able to uh, basically stop bingeing. She lost a bunch of weight, you know. She and she, what she described was, she said, you know, I feel like I have my life back. I can eat a single piece of pizza and actually enjoy it, right? Because it's not about avoiding pizza; it's about changing that relationship to the trigger and to the to the behavior. So she could be kind to herself, um, change her self image. And also allowed her to eat in a way that was not forcing herself not to overeat, but just naturally, you know, having a single slice and then being done.
1: Well, I have two questions about that. Number one, and what amount of time did it take you to work with her to get to that point?
0: It was a course of several months. And I would say that's pretty typical in our studies. So we've studied the Eat Right Now app and- you know, over the course of several months, we we actually, um, people can, when people really pay attention as they overeat, we just published a paper on this. It only takes about 10 to 15 times that somebody really paying attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero where they start to change the behavior. So that can happen relatively quickly, yet sustained change, I would say, takes at least a, a couple of months.
1: Wow, I still don't think that's very long. I think that's wonderful. And my second question, I was wondering when you said that she decided to be kind to herself instead of judge herself how does she go about deciding how to be kind to herself
0: yeah i so i tried not to rely on the decision and the you know basically anything that has to do with the prefrontal cortex the thinking part of the brain cuz that's the part that goes offline when we're stressed or when we're anxious so we can't really rely on it so what i have my patients do and the people in our e right now program or on winding anxiety program i have them I have them think back to a time when they were kind to themselves because or when even when somebody else was kind to them, if they can't think of a time when they were kind to themselves, eventually people can think of time, you know, because we've, we've all been kind to ourselves and we've certainly felt the kindness of others. Right. So when when they can think back to that time when they've been kind to themselves, I say, OK, just feel into what that felt like when you were kind to yourself. How's it feel compared to beating yourself up? And they're like, oh, wow, it does feel better. And so they don't have to try to convince themselves to be kind to themselves. They already know what it feels like. They've already had that experience. And that recollection can help inspire them to try it out and do it more. And then they've got more recent memories. And then it just starts to you know feed forward in a positive way.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that. Do you suggest weaning off of your habits slowly? And then what does this look like?
0: Yes, in general, I do. So for example, in our we have this uh, smoking program called Craving to Quit, where people can they can enter in their quit dates and then it'll automatically calculate based on how many cigarettes they're smoking today. It'll help them cut down the cigarettes slowly over time so their brain doesn't get quite the as uh, as irritated, let's say with yes, <laughs> our brain yeah. receptors. You know, they're like, hey, I need my nicotine. So we can we can help people slowly cut down so that it's not a the the chemical withdrawal isn't as as prominent. Uh, So I in general, I like the idea of having people slowly cut down on whatever it is. Although I've had a number of patients who say, Doc, I just want a quick cold turkey. And this is so I say, OK, I'll help you that way. and, And we give them, you know, give them support in that way. So it really depends on the person, but in general, if somebody was asking me my advice, I would say, yeah, let's, let's help you cut down because they can also, as they cut down, they can practice really bringing that awareness in in those moments so they can become disenchanted. So if you quit cold turkey, it's harder to really notice you know, what that cigarette tasted like if you haven't been paying attention. You know, For example, I had a patient who had been smoking for 40 years. So we calculated the number of times he basically smoked mindlessly, which was about two hundred ninety three thousand. Wow. Yeah, and he never, you know, because it was a habit, so he really wasn't paying attention. So when I ask my patients, you know, what's it, what's it like when you smoke a cigarette? They give me this blank stare because they're not, they're used to looking at their phone or talking to their smoking buddies or whatever. So it's really helpful to have that time to really pay attention. Like, what's it like? What's it really feel like to overeat? What's it really feel like to smoke? What's it really feel like to worry? So they can get that direct experience and become di- disenchanted. And that disenchantment helps them cut down because they're less excited to do it. Wow. You know, I had a mother-in-law, God rest her soul. She was the most precious
1: woman. I absolutely adored her. And uh, she, when I first met Philip, which was almost 50 years ago, she smoked non-filtered cigarettes.
0: Oh,
1: and yeah. she just really, really wanted to quit smoking, but she just couldn't do it. And I do remember when she made up the, her made a decision when I got pregnant with our first child. She just wanted to quit smoking, and uh, for the sake of the grandchild. And she bought a filter that was supposed to help you slowly cut down. And I have never been so impressed with anyone with her dedication. Not only you know her dedication, but she followed the rules, and, and it allowed her to smoke fewer and fewer cigarettes. And then she finally quit. And she was so proud of herself. And I I think it took her about maybe two months, but she was so proud of herself. But but just as you were just saying, she was aware of how many Mm -hmm. she had been smoking and she was writing down how many she smoked that day and how many she was cutting down. And I'll never forget it. She was a precious, beautiful woman, the beautiful heart, and very proud of herself when she quit smoking.
0: Well, what a great story and, you know, what a great inspiration for quitting.
1: Right? Yeah. I just, I love a beautiful story when someone succeeds with something like smoking and overeating. I'm so happy for your patience. So what can relapsing do to your progress? Can it wipe it all away in one swoop?
0: That's a great question. So <laughs> the way I think of this is if there, there are two ways that we can approach a relapse or a quote unquote failure, Right. One is that we can say, "Oh, I failed," and we can beat ourselves up. We can fall into those habit loops, right? So the triggers, the relapse, the behaviors, beating ourselves up, and what that does is it actually um, that self-judgment makes us feel closed down, you know, contracted. It's like we're, you know, when somebody's beating us up, we're going to try to make ourselves, you know, tight and control, so that we're not, um, we're not, you know, we're not not getting, we're protecting ourselves. Think of it that way. So that's a, that's really a tough place to be in to learn. We, we can't learn when we're closed down. Uh, think of, you know, Carol Dweck's work around fixed and growth mindset. Fixed mindset's about where, you know, basically being closed down and not open to learning new things. So the other path is to lean into that and say, oh, I relapse. Instead of, oh, no, I relapse. I'm going to beat myself up. We go, oh, I relapse. What can I learn from this? And we can open to it and move into a growth mindset where we can say, wow, you know, Okay, what didn't work? What can I learn from this? And in that sense, there's you know, if we're sometimes we learn more from failure, quote unquote failure than success. So if we're always learning, is there ever such a thing as moving backwards? You know, it's like two step forward, one step sideways because I wasn't expecting it, but it's not a step backwards, and I think. You know, whether it's relapse or anything else, if we are approaching life with that growth mindset where we're always saying instead of going, oh, no, we're going, oh, you know, we're always learning and growing. And so there's no step backward in that respect. And that's the way I prefer to approach life and, and try to really encourage my patients to, to, to approach it that way as well.
1: Oh, I love that answer. I love that way of thinking. Two steps forward, one step sideways, not backwards, because you're Right. It's just a way to learn. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Success with these things doesn't happen in a straight line. It's sometimes to the side and then forward again. So, in general, is there a certain amount of time that the brain needs to break a bad habit?
0: That is the million dollar question, probably literally a multi billion dollar question. If people could say, well, you can just break a habit in X. I actually have a chapter uh, in my Unwinding Anxiety book about you know, that, that idea because there are so many myths out there on the internet about how long it takes to break a bad habit. Uh, the, I think the most perpetuated one that I've seen is 21 days, which is based on some plastic surgeons, uh, case reports of patients taking how long it takes a patient to get used to their new nose job right? oh. so, <laughs> from the 1960s, right? That's not exactly scientific. Uh, And probably doesn't apply to most of us. So here, it's really about uh, that reward value and seeing how unrewarding the behavior is. So if we can see how unrewarding it is to step out in front of on into the street and almost get hit by a car, we don't need to do that for two months to learn the new behavior. If we really see, you know, in the study that I just mentioned with our Eat Right Now app, 10 to 15 times of people paying attention to what it's like to overeat changes that reward values to to the point where they shift that behavior. So it really depends on one main thing, which is awareness, right? And seeing really, really how clearly how unrewarding a behavior is. And if the behavior is really not very rewarding, like, you know, cigarettes, they taste like crap, then we can change that pretty quickly. If the behavior is, you know, kind of mixed up. So for example, chocolate, right? it's not about the chocolate suddenly tasting bad, but it's about really paying attention to find where that pleasure plateau is for us. And that can be subtle uh, for folks and it can depend on how hungry we are when we usually eat chocolate and all of those things. But overall, it's really critically more dependent on that awareness and the the reward value changing than a specific pre-specified time period. There, There is no such thing. really. There
1: is no, and everyone is different everyone is different. You cannot judge yourself at how you do something by how someone else does the same thing when it comes to this. It's just everyone is different. And you have to really, I think, give yourself a break and do it at your pace and how you do it. And don't listen to how quickly someone else adapted or how long it took someone else to do it. So I would love for you to talk about how malleable the brain is in terms of incorporating new core habits and positive personality traits.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's a great, great question. So just like we, so my lab focuses a lot on helping people change unhealthy habits, you know, and we talked about 10 to 15 times of paying attention using this Eat Right Now app as a way to help people overcome overeating, for example. I think the same can be true with uh, creating positive habits, because that reward value increases every time we pay attention and really see how rewarding it is. So for example, my two favorite flavors of Bigger Better Offer are uh, curiosity and kindness. So if we just uh, take time every day, and you've probably talked about this with other folks, but if we just take time every day to reflect on what it's like, you know, think of a time when somebody was kind to us today. Uh, Think of something that we're grateful for today, right? There's a lot of research on gratitude and just doing a little bit of gratitude practice at the end of the day, that can get instilled pretty quickly as a positive habit because it feels great, right? It feels great to think about all the, all the things that we can be grateful for. It feels great when people are kind to us. It feels great when we're truly being selflessly kind to others. We're not looking for something in return, but it's just truly like out of, the, out of the bottom of our heart, just selflessly being kind. If, it, if we can pay attention to how good that feels, that habit gets instilled pretty quickly, which is great.
1: Oh, it is great. I love that. So can I ask you what your bad habits are, or or have been in the past? <laughs> you talked about them at the beginning.
0: How long do we have? <laughs>
1: <laughs> as long as you need.
0: <laughs> I've had a number, you know, and I, I wrote a, about some of these in in the Craving Mind book. But it, you know, it a lot of these I hadn't even recognized. So, for example, you know, I, I did a lot of sports in high school. I ran cross country and track, and I wrestled uh, for a bit. And there were. You know, when I when I started college, I didn't, you know, I was in a a D1 college, so I didn't I didn't continue those competitively into college. But I started realizing later that I was kind of addicted to exercising where I would plan my, you know, when I go home from college, I would, you know, for for a break, I would plan my days around making sure I could exercise. If we were going to my family was going to travel somewhere, I needed to make sure I could you know say, okay, I get a run in. And it was causing problems for me, for me and my, you know, my family and all this. So I didn't even notice that until I started learning what addiction was. And then there's, you know, the addiction to distraction, the the addiction to thinking. I would go on uh, silent meditation retreats, you know, for a, a week or a month. And my brain would start telling me, you know, it's like, oh, here's a great scientific study you should do. And you better write this down and all this and I started realizing, like, this is a bunch of crap. This is my brain just trying to get me not to meditate. And so I started labeling it as the world's greatest idea, you know, as in not the greatest oh, idea. It. And I would tell myself, if this is really so great, and I, if I remember it at the end of the day, then I'll write it down. And, you know, it's like very, very few things, things got written down. And it helped me start to notice these habitual patterns of my mind, where my mind was just trying to distract me from paying attention and ironically, from learning how my own mind worked.
1: Wow, I love that. This is so interesting. Can you right now please tell us all about the company you co-founded, Mind Sciences? Because it's the perfect tool for implementing everything we've been discussing.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this came serendipitously out of some research that I was doing when I was an assistant professor at Yale. I was studying the, the brain patterns of experienced meditators uh, during meditation because I wanted to see what was happening in the brain when we meditate. <laughs> and we learned a bunch of things. so we learned, you know there's this part of the, this network of brain regions that gets really activated when we basically when we think about ourselves. You know when we regret things we've done in the past, when we worry about the future, actually the more we worry, the more this network gets activated. It also gets activated when we crave things, every, ranging from chocolate to cigarettes to gambling to whatever. And so we we actually found that this brain region gets really quiet when somebody's meditating, because that's what mindfulness is about: is helping people notice when we get caught up in these patterns, how painful it is to get caught up in them, and to naturally let go and just bring you know rest and awareness, because that feels so much better; it's so much more spacious. So Yale had patented some of that work. We had we'd started this company to actually give people neurofeedback and realized quickly that the hardware. So our software and the brain regions were, you know, pretty solid, but the hardware wasn't there to get, be able to get that to people in a way that's going to, you know, be affordable. Basically, you know, because we our our neurofeedback setup in our lab was like eighty thousand dollars, you know, for EEG wow. neurofeedback. And, and actually, Anderson Cooper tried it out for a 60 minutes piece a little while ago. So if anybody's interested, they, they can take a look at his little video of, of him trying it out. So we, we started uh, saying, well, what can we actually do? And I, you know, my, I had some really good clinical uh, study results. So we had done a study with mindfulness training for smoking. We'd gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Then we did this Eat Right Now program, you know, where we where we got 40% reduction in craving related eating. We created this Unwinding Anxiety app where we got a 67% reduction in, in generalized anxiety. So people with generalized anxiety. So, you know, this this company pivoted from giving, you know, trying to give people neurofeedback to really training people to understand that they can actually give themselves their own feedback, right? And so these, these apps, whether it's for smoking with our craving to quit program or eating with the Eat Right Now app or even the Unwinding Anxiety app, is really geared toward helping people understand how their minds work, you know, and then take that as a way to uh, be self-empowered to be able to work with their own minds. In fact, we just created a new app that we just launched called Unwinding from Sharecare to just basically help people develop that roadmap of their own mind, right? So anybody, they don't even have to be struggling with smoking or overeating or anxiety, but just like, you know, struggling with real life. If they're stressed out, if they've got financial stress, if they procrastinate, you know, we create these mini courses to help people just understand how their mind works and then learn to work with their mind. So that's, you know, that's how we created that company was because as a psychiatrist, I was struggling myself to help my patients and, You know, we were getting all these great research results and I want to help people. I don't want to just do the research. So we brought all of this together and we were very fortunate to to have these digital therapeutics come out to be able to help people. Anybody can use them. Anybody can download them and start to use them.
1: Oh, congratulations. What a phenomenal time for everyone out there to have this available to them Mm -hmm. after all we've all been through with this pandemic. And everything that's going on in the world. And then you have this to offer. Congratulations. And thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, it's, it's very, you know, it's very rewarding for us to be mission oriented where we can, I can wake up in the morning and say, you know, what can I do to help the world? And not just in some Pollyannish way, but like in a scientific way, you know, where it's like, what can we, how can we bring our neuroscience research to bear actually help patients and help anybody you know that anybody that has a smartphone
1: oh that's so wonderful you must help so many people with these tools what's next for you and mind sciences
0: well one thing that we're starting to look at is how we can even make these programs more effective so i mentioned the 67 percent effectiveness with our unwinding anxiety app which is pretty darn good i'm happy with that oh, that's amazing yeah i'm cool. I'm always looking for ways to personalize these things. So some of my research, we haven't published it yet, but some of the research suggests that we can actually identify people at baseline and we can, we can personalize the programs to make them even even more effective. That's the aim in, 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 at the next step. And then also to really help at a population level. So I work at you know, the, I'm in the School of Public Health at Brown, which is the idea is to help people at a population level. So with this unwinding from Sharecare app, the idea is to reach everyone, you know, anyone, I don't know, anyone that doesn't want to know how their own mind works, right? And so can we actually reach people at that population level and start this shift in just through understanding how our own minds work, start this shift from, you know, from divisiveness, from ignorance, from whatever, toward connectedness, toward kindness, toward curiosity, so that we can all not only help ourselves individually but hopefully we can help move forward together as a society and as a as a planet
1: let me ask you this what is the youngest age an adult can learn it use it mm-hmm. and then what's the youngest age they can help to apply it to their children or grandchildren
0: yes we've done so we've done some pilot research with our unrunning anxiety app for example in people as young as 13 and i specifically wrote the programs to help teenagers. I was, <laughs> my teenage years, not so pleasant. <laughs> you know, so so I, and especially today with social media, really, um, you know, being a really challenging for, for teenagers, especially we've seen all this stuff blow up around Instagram. So, you know, social media, not good for mental health. So we want to really be able to help folks at a young age. And I'll also say that I've seen, I've gotten so many, uh, Pieces of feedback from uh, from parents who say, you know, I started using a program, and then I just started talking to my young child, and we started doing these practices together. And so they do these things together as a family. It's not like the kids using the app, but the parent is knowing and learning their own mind much more intimately and understanding their own mind. So as they do that, they develop the wisdom be, to be able to help their children, and then they can go through these. Through these process changes together, and I have to say that warms my heart. Yes, <laughs> to yes. see that happen. That
1: was my question because I I know that that young young adults, young teens would not be able to grasp it. But I, I I was wondering once the adults learn it, then they can do that with their young children. And I love to hear that young teens have the capability of working with their parents and starting to learn to use that. That's Phenomenal. That's that's just amazing in this day and time.
0: Absolutely. And I would have to say we've seen teenagers as young as 13 just using the program on their own because they they're they're pretty smart, you know? yes. they're pretty savvy. Yes. And and that's a great time where they're just doing a lot of self-exploration. So imagine if we can teach teenagers to know their own minds, starting at the average age where they start smoking, you know, 13 is the average age where, uh, you know, kids, if they're going to smoke, they're going to start smoking. So let's teach them to work with their own minds instead of get caught up in in unhealthy habits. Boy, what a what a great next generation to have, you know, to, to be this mindful generation. Oh, I agree. That.
1: I ask that because I have a, an 11 and a half year old granddaughter and a 10 year, she has a 10 year old brother and I feel like they're brilliant. <laughs> so I can see how a mom and dad could easily work with them and, and get them started. So thank you so much for doing this and helping the world. So we've come to a time in the podcast where we do our second thing that we do with every podcast, and that's play a game. Do you like playing games? I do. Oh, so this game is called Healthy Habits. So we've created this game, of course, for this podcast. And so we've talked about so many strategies to break a habit, but I wanted this game to focus on how to create new healthy habits. I'm going to list off a problem, and we're both going to give a suggestion for a healthy habit to adopt in this situation. Time to share our secrets. Good (laughs) secrets. A healthy habit to deal with. Okay. So the first one, online shopping addiction. Oh, so what's a secret? Do you want to go first or do you want me to?
0: Why don't you kick things off and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to be your wing person for this. Okay. Yeah.
1: So an online shopping addiction, a healthy habit to deal with that would be one of two things. Uh, have your partner or someone in your home monitor your time on the computer <laughs> or maybe set a limit for how much you can spend on the computer or... Get off at of the computer. Don't get on and don't go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a healthy yeah. habit to deal with.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would just add, if somebody does find themselves, you know, sneaking that peek at the computer to really ask themselves before they click buy, you know, do to kind of feel into the process. Like, what do I actually really need right now versus what do I want? Because often that buying process is is coming from a need, right? They're feeling lonely, they're feeling restless, they're feeling bored, they're feeling sad, whatever. Usually, often it's an emotion. So what do I actually need? And is this purchasing, is this purchase gonna actually fulfill that need as compared to just make me want more, right? (laughs) And feed that habit of shopping. So that's what I would say, just asking that question. And then if it doesn't, you know, if it's not gonna fulfill that need, which it often isn't, then ask, well, what can I actually do to fulfill that need? You know, if I'm, if I'm lonely, can I call a friend? Can I, you know, or, or whatever, just so we can meet that need as compared to just uh, fulfill that want.
1: Oh, wow. Your answer was much better. <laughs> okay. The next one, a healthy habit for loneliness.
0: Ooh, do you want me to go first for that You go one? first. You go first. All right. So healthy habit for loneliness. So here, you know, I think there's a difference between being alone and feeling alone. And so often we feel lonely if we're used to uh, distracting ourselves, right? So there was was a study from a couple of years ago showing that people would rather, uh, you know, if they're given a choice between sitting alone in a room just to think, or giving sitting alone in the room and shocking themselves with like a shock that feels bad, you know, like like a shock. They would, you know, it's like mo, it was more men than women. I won't I won't uh, editorialize there, but they prefer to <laughs> shock themselves than just sit alone in a room because they're just not used to being alone with themselves. So here I would say there's a difference between being alone and being lonely, and here we can explore like oh, what does being alone actually? feel like? And can I actually use this as an opportunity to learn about myself and explore my own mind as compared to just like feeling lonely and getting lost in that feeling, that uncomfortable feeling of loneliness. So instead of going, oh, I'm lonely going, oh, I'm alone. What's this like? And we can foster that curiosity and curiosity, man, that's a superpower. <laughs> that, that helps with just about anything.
1: Oh well, that is a fabulous answer. I love that quite honestly, I love being alone. I love having alone time. So my answer to that is, when I read this, just now, I, I say, if possible, adopt a puppy. <laughs> because we've adopted two puppies a year ago. They're now dogs, huge dogs. But I would say if you tend to have loneliness in your life, I strongly suggest adopt a pet. That's my answer.
0: Oh, great one! You know, we just adopted a kitten a few months ago, and we absolutely his, his name is Samson the Wonder Cats, and we absolutely love him. Oh. <laughs> he, he is fabulous! Yeah, so I totally agree. Great answer.
1: I love that. I love cats too. Okay, a healthy habit for being overworked or experiencing burnout, but a healthy habit Ooh. for that. I know my healthy habit. Do you want to go? I'm gonna go first. first. My oh, yeah. my healthy habit. For when I'm feeling overworked or burnt out, is a bubble bath. I love <laughs> lighting a candle, taking a bubble bath, and it kind of goes with the alone time. But that's my really happy, healthy habit.
0: Ooh, it's tough, tough to top that one, so mm-hmm. I, I won't. I don't think this will top it, but I will say. You know, uh, just thinking about a research study that we did with anxious physicians Uh that, you know, because there's a lot of burnout with with anxiety and and physicians. And we found that anxiety and burnout are highly correlated. So this might sound too geeky as a scientific answer, but I would say helping people see what's leading to the burnout. So, for example, you know, is anxiety leading to burnout and and getting at those root causes? Yep. Yep. (laughs) yep, yep. Plus a bubble bath. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would throw that in as well. Yeah. That, that helps just about anything.
1: Yeah. Think about it while you're soaking in that bubble bath. <laughs> Get yeah, to that totally. root problem. Okay. Here's the last one a healthy habit for nail biting.
0: Hmm. Whoa. Uh, so, rock, paper, scissors. Who wants to go first for this? Okay.
1: One? You go first.
0: Okay. Okay. So here I would bring in this three-step process where I would ask people to map out, you know, what triggers me to bite my nails. What do I get? Like pay attention as they bite their nails, especially not just like when they're alone biting their nails, but like notice the social consequences. Like nobody's, Hey, look, I bite my nails. I'm so proud of it. You know, it, it often doesn't feel very good. Uh, and it's, it's kind of indicating that somebody's stress, for example, you know, so here that, and then I would say, as it goes back to the previous answer, get at the root cause. So if we're stressed, find a healthy way to work with the stress as compared to biting our nails. So pay attention. What's it like when I bite my nails? How rewarding is it? Not very rewarding when I bite my nails and then move toward like, well, what's a healthier way to work with this? Like maybe take a deep mindful breath. Uh, I've one of my favorite practices is called five finger breathing, where, you know, as we're breathing, we are tracing our fingers, you know, as we breathe up, we trace or as we breathe in, we trace up our, our pinky. As we breathe out, we trace down. You know, of course, of five breaths, we can trace our entire hand, which is a great way to ground ourselves because it brings in all this multi, multimodal awarenessing, if you want to think of it that way. That's a great way to ground ourselves when we're stressed as compared to biting our nails, which doesn't actually get it that, you know, help us ground ourselves. We might even feel worse.
1: Oh, well, my healthy habit for nail biting Would be to go to the store and find the most beautiful red nail polish, (laughs) the most beautiful one you can find. Buy it. And before you go to bite your nails, just put another coat of that beautiful red nail polish (laughs) on your nails. Now, the listeners don't know it, but I'm showing my red manicure. I don't bite my nails, but I certainly wouldn't bite them with this beautiful red nail polish on my nails.
0: Yes, your nails look fabulous. Thank uh, so <laughs>
1: It's called Red <laughs> <I'm>, Ferrari.
0: <laughs> oh, this view I'm I'm bearing witness. That is quite <laughs> quite a Ferrari red. That's fabulous.
1: Thank you so much. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of the episode. So, Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for sharing such important information with the Secret Squad. And before we wrap up, I need to ask you one final question. This podcast is all about sharing secrets that have the power to change our lives. So can you share one major secret, anything you've learned from a friend or family member along the way that has dramatically impacted your life?
0: Well, I would say this, I, if this counts, yeah, a friend, I'm thinking of uh, my meditation teachers. So the power of curiosity and kindness, you know, as a, as a package that the boy, the power of just learning to be curious and learning to be kind and how they feed on themselves, they pay it forward. That is the that is the secret I would love to share with everybody in the world. (laughs) Let's all become more curious and kind.
1: I just love that answer. Thank you so much. That is so wonderful. Now, please tell the listeners how to find out more information about you and mind sciences online.
0: I'd be happy to. So I have a website, just drjud.com, dot com, that has, probably has links to all of the apps that I mentioned, uh, my books, uh, and then we all also have a bunch of free resources. I love to try to teach people about how their minds work. So we've got some animations and other you know, other things that help people really understand how their mind works. So drjud.com. I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, also on Instagram at Jud, dr.jud, D-R-J-U-D period jud. So those are the those are the plus places folks can uh, can find me.
1: Oh that's fantastic. And secret squad, head on over to i've got a secret with RobinMcGraw.com for more information about today's episode as well as photos, recipes and blogs. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.